Good morning. Let's pray for the Lord's blessing upon our time. Heavenly Father, we ask now that you would bless your word to our hearts, to our lives, to the glory of your Son. Would you use this time to shape us, give us grace to behold Jesus and be shaped by him. Would you grow our affections for Christ and transform us in our lives for his glory. And it's his name we pray. Amen. We no longer feel ourselves to be guests in someone else's home. And therefore obliged to make our behavior conform with the set of pre-existing cosmic rules. We make the rules. We establish the parameters of reality. We create the world. And because we do, we no longer feel beholden to outside forces. We no longer have to justify our behavior. For we are now the architects of the universe. We are responsible for nothing outside of ourselves. For we are the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. What does that sound like? Sounds like the voice of Satan. It's indeed the words from Jeremy Rifkin, a contemporary social theorist, economist, and author. It might be easy to hear those words the shocking, jarring nature of those words and condemn it and so easily move to a place of judgment over those words. But the truth is that temptation, that tendency to speak like that, to talk like that, the pride, the arrogance, the disregard for God, that's in all of us. And it's been in all of us since birth. That's why there's a constant refrain in the pool household, from the parents to the children, you are not in charge. Over and over and over again, you are not in charge. But that's what sin seeks to do. It seeks to flip everything on its head. It seeks to usurp God's authority in our lives and the, and the structures that God has graciously placed into our lives. John Stott summed up sin in this way. He said, the essence of sin is man putting himself where only God belongs. It's a rebellion against God and the cosmic order that He has created. That's what's been happening throughout history, ever since Adam and Eve in the garden, right? Man has been asserting himself against God's throne and putting himself on that throne where only God deserves to be. It's been happening all throughout history, we see it in ourselves, and we see it this morning in our text. We see it with the religious leaders in Jesus' time. And so we're looking at this morning, and as they're coming into contact with Jesus, it's actually a clash of kingdoms. It's a, it's a clash of authorities. 
the authority of the religious leaders and the authority of Jesus. And this is a clash. And the fact is, only one authority can stand. Only one authority will win out. And if you're not on team Jesus, it's not going to go well for you. It's not going to go well for these religious leaders. And this morning, if we're not submitted to Jesus' authority, we're leaning in on our throne and our authority, and then it's not going to go well for us either. We have a choice to make, a very simple choice in life. Will we receive the authority of Jesus and receive life? Or will we reject the authority of Jesus and receive death? Receive or reject the authority of Jesus. So take inventory this morning. Your heart. Who's on the throne of your heart? Who's calling all the shots? Who's making the rules? Right? You wake up in the morning. What voices are you listening to? What voices are you surrendering to? Who tells you where to go? At the end of the day, it's either Jesus or self. As we launch into this text this morning, let's, let's remember things are heating up between the leaders, religious leaders and Jesus. We saw last week in verse 18, right? Jesus has just cleansed the temple, their corrupt system, their corrupt business system going on in the temple. He's cleansed it. He's rebuked them in ways, and they now, verse 18, are seeking to destroy Jesus. They want him gone. And so what we're going to see starting today and over the next few weeks is the Pharisees or the leaders, all of them together, are launching a series of attacks against Jesus. They want him gone. And so this morning we're seeing this first attack. Verse 27, and they came again to Jerusalem and as he was walking in the temple, this is Jesus, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? They probably have immediately in their awareness, like it was yesterday, that the temple cleansing happened. But they are probably also referring to the whole of Jesus's ministry. They're aware all that Jesus has been saying and doing. And they're not contesting his authority here. No, nobody is questioning the authority of Jesus. Nobody's questioning his authority. Even these guys who are so opposed to Jesus. They've heard or seen him do the miraculous and extend his authority. We've been seeing this throughout Mark. Authority over storms. Authority over sickness. Authority over Satan in the demonic realm. Authority over death itself. We've seen him forgiving sins. We've seen him teaching with authority. This is a man of authority. That's not what these leaders are contesting and attacking Jesus for. They're not questioning his authority. They're questioning his credentials. Well, who gave you that authority? And who do you think you are to be operating with such authority? They're threatened by it. They're threatened by his authority. And so their plan is this. Hey, well, let's go ask him. 
Let's ask him to show us his credentials because he's only got a couple options. He's either going to say, hey, I got this authority from God, which if he says that, we'll call him out for blasphemy because God didn't give him this authority, according to our opinion. And if he says from man, well, we'll nail him for that too. Because who does he think he is doing all these things from the authority of man? And so they come to Jesus, and this is their sort of plan, and they're attacked, but it's always wrong to attack Jesus. It's not going to go well when you attack Jesus. This is their offensive move. Then Jesus goes on the offensive himself. It's Jesus' turn. And what we're going to now see throughout the remainder of this message in this text is Jesus responds with a one-two punch. He's going to give them punch to the stomach and knock the air out of them. And as they bend over, he's going to uppercut them to the jaw. He's going to do that in two ways. The first punch is going to be through a question. He's going to expose their evil hearts with a question. And then he's going to expose their evil hearts with a parable. All right, so first, the question. We see this in verse 29. Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another saying, well, if we say from heaven, he will say, well, then why did you not believe him? But shall we say from man, then they were afraid of the people for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. It's like Jesus knows exactly what their game plan is and he flips the table, the script on them. And he brings their attention to John. Why does he bring up John? John is a forerunner of Jesus and a prototype of Jesus. Listen to the beginning of Mark. Chapter 1, verse 2. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It's a summary of John's ministry. It's exactly what Jesus picks up there in Mark 1. But then we see, G, uh, Mark, uh, we see John preach this specifically, verse 7 of chapter 1. After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John is the forerunner and the prototype to Jesus' ministry. So Jesus is basically saying, hey, if you're not going to believe John, which they didn't, then you're not going to believe me. He knows they're not there to learn. They're there to trap. They're not there to understand Jesus' authority and submit to it. They're there to try to trap Jesus and exert their own authority. They've got an agenda and they're sticking to it. And Jesus knows this. They are not in a posture to learn from Jesus. So he is combating them. 
Nowhere in the Gospels or in the Bible do we see anybody come, coming humbly to Jesus who needs Jesus, who's, who's coming to find out answers and seeking the truth. The Word of God says He doesn't cast out anyone who does that. But these people are coming to fight. They're coming with an agenda, not after truth. Right? The demons believe truth. Evil hearts do not surrender to truth. They don't want to face truth. They don't want to surrender to truth. And that's what's going on here. These leaders are now exposed. Jesus just exposed them. You're not after truth. You can't even answer me. You're here to attack me. And that's evidence of your evil, wicked hearts. So that's the first punch. And then the second punch, he's exposing their evil hearts with a parable. Verse 1 of chapter 12. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went into another country. So this is a very common practice. If you have a property and you go to another land, you want to take care of that property, so you hire others to take care of it for you. And this story... It's a vineyard. This man, he has a vineyard. He loves this vineyard. He wants his vineyard to produce fruit. And he's going to another country. And so he hires these tenants to take care of it so that they will bring fruit. Now, anytime that we look at parables, we got to be careful that we don't press parables too hard to make all their details line up with other things. Usually in the scriptures, parables have one main point. But here we actually do see there's going to be several points of reference that are truth here in this parable. Some of it's not a one-to-one to truth, and we'll see that as well. And so we've got to ask, well, who, who is this man in the story who owns this vineyard? This man is God, and the vineyard is Israel. God has a vineyard. That vineyard is Israel, and God is trying to extract fruit from Israel that would be to the glory of His name and to the blessing of all people. The higher tenets in this story are those that He's put in charge of Israel, the religious authorities. So that's kind of the setting to this story. Verse 2, let's see what happens in this story. When the season came, He sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and they beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. So the man in this story is unable to get fruit from his vineyard. And over and over and over again, he's sending servants to go, go, go to my vineyard and please bring me some of the fruit of that vineyard. But over and over and again, that fruit does not come back and neither do some of the servants come back. It's really shocking. The parable should shock us and should shock them. It'd be shocking to this contemporary audience. This is a shocker. It's shocking, even as I was reading this week, someone just pointing out the shocking nature of this owner. Like, what patience? 
to keep sending servants in. What patience for him to withhold wrath on these hired tenants. Shocking in the patience, but shocking in how these tenants treat the servants. And while it is shocking, the shock factor is building, it's growing all the way up until this next very point. Verse 6. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. So up to this point, all these servants, they represent the prophets. The prophets of God have come to the people of God, to the leaders, to speak God's word, and it's not received. It's rejected. They're beaten or killed. But then finally, the owner says, I got one last effort. And he's really hopeful about it. He's excited about it. Hey, I, I, I know a way that I can get the fruit. I'm going to send my son because surely they're not going to disrespect my son. How can they disrespect the heir of the property? Surely then I will receive fruit. Surely then I will receive fruit. And this son is the Son of God. This is the true Son of God, Jesus Himself. Mark 1, 11, from the baptism, comes out of the water, word from heaven declares, you are my beloved Son. In you I am well pleased. Jesus is the Son of God whom God takes pleasure in and throughout history He has sent these servants to extract fruit from Jerusalem and from Israel. And they've been rejected. And these wicked, evil rulers. And now the Son is sent. And this is where the parable breaks down a little bit because you would almost think this, that God didn't know what was going to happen. God knows exactly what's going to happen to the son. There's no doubt in his mind. No doubt in his mind. For God so loved the world that he gives his only son. And the reason why this is in here in this parable is to highlight the unthinkable nature of the evil. Who can imagine that the Son of God would be destroyed? That's why this little fact of the parable is in here. Verse 7, this is the heir. Come, shall they respond. Let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and they killed him. And they threw him out of the vineyard. Jesus has already predicted his death and his resurrection a number of times to the disciples. And here he's predicting his death to these leaders. And it's an indictment. He's predicting it at their hands. This is pointing us to the cross. He knows that in just a couple days, from now, this is Passover week. These leaders will come. 
and they will lay hands on him and they will string him up on a cross with nails and a crown of thorns and they will mock his authority. King of the Jews, save yourself. And they will do that outside the city gates, outside the vineyard, where only criminals belong, in the refuse of the city. That's what's about to happen. Jesus knows this. Are they going to get away with it? The greatest evil act in history, are they going to get away with it? Greatest injustice that's ever taken place on the face of this earth, are they going to get away with it? Well, if they are in charge, if they are the ones in authority, then yes, they will. Then yes, they will. And injustice will reign. But if they are not in charge, if somebody else is in charge, if God is in charge, then they are in trouble. That's what we see in the next verse. Verse 9. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. They will be destroyed. They will be destroyed and the vineyard will be given to others. There's a higher authority that they have to pay to, give account to. And who is the vineyard being given to? It's being given to all those who faith and repentance in Christ, which is the church. The vineyard is being given to the church. Those connected to Christ. In the height of the irony, Jesus continues, verse 10, Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected becomes the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Changing metaphors here, now we see a stone. And this stone that the builders rejected right there, they're building this stone, this big structure that's supposed to give glory to God, call it a temple. And they find this stone and they say, this stone is worthless. It doesn't fit in our building. Let's throw it away. Don't need it. But have you not read? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The one rejected has become the most important stone of all stones. The stone that gives shape and design and function and beauty to the entire structure. That stone is Christ. And this could only happen through His death. It is through His death that the stone becomes the precious stone to, to, to erect the temple to be a housing place for the Spirit of God. It takes death, and it's also this stone that becomes the stumbling block that is the stone of judgment that would crush these builders, that would crush the leaders. You have to give an account to Jesus. But for the, for the church, it's the most precious, glorious thing in the universe. And I love it here at the this is the Lord's doing. 
It is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Salvation begins with God and ends with God. God does this. Not the religious leaders. This is God's doing. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. John 3 and then in John 10. Father knows what's going on and the Son knows what's going on. 10, 18. Jesus says this, talking about His life. I have authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. You might come at me with your weapons. You might come at me with your cross. But don't get any idea that you're in charge here. You're not. The only reason why I'm getting up on that cross is because I am choosing to. I'm doing it voluntarily. You're not trapping me. You're not catching me. You're not holding me down. The grave can't hold me down. I'm going, I'm going there willingly. I am in authority, Jesus says. I am the I am. He's God. As He comes out of the grave, He's ascended into the heavens far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And above every name that can be named. Not only in this age, but in the age to come. He's far above it. Don't get any idea that any other authority here or in the spiritual realm or in the age to come has any sort of rival against our King Jesus. He might look like he's the scum of the earth hanging up on that cross, but he's not that. Not that at all. He's in full authority on a cross. That's unbelievable. The sovereign one of the universe is hanging on a cross. Why? Why would the sovereign creator God be strung up on a cross as a criminal outside the city gates like a piece of trash, like a dog? Criminal. Because He loves you. Because He loves you. It's an authority that's not out for His own good at your expense. It's an authority that seeks your good at self-expense, at self-sacrifice. He so loves you that He would go to a cross for you. It was not when we were all cleaned up and had a great resume. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Okay, While we were on our thrones, pretending to be God, asserting ourselves against God, not wanting God in our life, attacking God, crucifying God in our spirits, saying we didn't want God, reject God, don't want His rule, don't want His word, Want ourselves, want our own glory. 
It's right there that he dies for you. Not when you turn. Not when you take a bath. No, in your moral, spiritual filth. That is grace upon grace that we will never fathom, but that would cause us to worship now and forever. This is an authority that the world does not know anything about. But the church does. John Stott continues that quote from earlier. Says this, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. While the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Salvation is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. What a marvel if God would give you the eyes to see it this morning to see your sin and to see your Savior. What a marvel of marvels. There's nothing more beautiful in the universe than Jesus Christ in all that He would accomplish in His death and resurrection, ascension, His reign and coming kingdom for sinful humanity who would place their faith and trust in Him. What a marvel and a beauty. But not everybody can see it. And that's what's so tragic. We see that with these leaders. Verse 12. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. The Lord has just exposed them. Expose their evil hearts with this parable and this question. Instead of using this as an opportunity to repent of their own agenda and authority and to submit to Christ's, they dig their heels in. Like Pharaoh against Moses, this battle of authorities, plague after plague after plague. Let my people go, Pharaoh. It keeps getting worse for you. Pharaoh says, no. His heart gets hardened. He digs his heels in deeper. Not giving up my authority. Judgment comes. Judgment comes for these leaders. Their exposure does not lead to humility and to repentance, but to more pride and more arrogance. What about you this morning? As the Word of God comes into your awareness, your mind and brain and heart this morning, as the Word exposes us, would we repent? 
We've all committed cosmic treason against our God. We've all usurped the throne in our own ways. And his word comes to us this morning and it says, you're guilty of that. All sinners are guilty of that. All mankind is guilty of that. Would we allow that exposure to, to humble us, to draw us to faith and repentance in Christ? Would we receive the authority of Christ and so receive life? Or would we reject the authority of Christ and so receive death? That's the choice we have this morning as our sense of authority is colliding with His. There's only one authority that's going to win, and it is King Jesus. May we take this morning as a fresh challenge to surrender our lives to Christ and His Lordship. And when we do, we will find that He is indeed the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and that we would have it no other way. He is the most gracious, sovereign, wonderful king that there could be. His kingdom will win. All Satan and all those that would oppose God and his son Jesus will be placed under his feet forever. And we as the church then get the blessing as we are connected to Christ, as He is the vine and we are the branches, so God, our Father in heaven, will look down on His church and through His Son. The Son is bringing fruit to the Father. And we get the glorious privilege as the church to bring that fruit. And the ways that we abide in Christ and live out mission for Christ and declare His glory and acts of service and mercy out into this world, we bring fruit to God in heaven. And there's nothing sweeter to our souls than to get involved in that mission. To Him be glory both now and forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word this morning that confronts us in our independence that confronts our sense of authority. We ask forgiveness for the ways that we have transgressed your law and so exerted our own authority. Thank you for forgiveness in Christ. Thank you for redeeming us and restoring us. And now through Christ, allowing us to bear fruit for God that would be pleasing in your sight, that we are holy and beloved of God as the church. God, would you lead us? Would you lead Harvest Church to become a harvest for you, Lord? Would we bear much fruit that your son Jesus would be exalted and glorified, God, both here in our hearts and in the world? Do it now. In your name we pray. Amen.